My name is Paul Rees, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Shark Chapel. Just extend my invitation. Uh, welcome, my invitation, my welcome. And actually, please stick around afterwards this, uh, uh, and, and get to know some folk. Um, just want to make you aware of the book of the month. Uh, we're promoting and encouraging good Christian reading, and the book for this month is uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. Uh, and it's got a great subtitle, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. And uh, isn't that the truth? Uh, you know, in a sense, if we just wait till we've got things sorted to help other people, we're never going to get around to it. But this is a book that encourages people in need of change, helping other people in need of change. And the lectures that we're going to be doing midweek, um, that uh, in the next four sessions of ministry training, in a sense, are distilling some of the key ideas from this book. But uh, So come along if you want the pricey version uh, to the lectures, but get the book if you want the fuller picture. And uh, those will be available in the coming weeks from the bookshop. Um, let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this opportunity now to, to stop and to hear your voice as we read your word as we reflect on it together and we ask that your Holy Spirit would take up your word and apply it to each one of our hearts in the way that each individual need requires it this morning Lord we thank you for the gospel please reveal the glory of Christ to us afresh or for the very first time we ask this in his precious name Amen well, if you're visiting this Sunday, um, please know we're working through the book of Zechariah. It's in the Old Testament. You want to open your Bibles to find it, page uh, 951. And I hope, for those who've been coming along regularly, the, this book is beginning to grab your heart. It's beginning to... Um, maybe you're starting to think some bigger thoughts about God and his purposes in the world. Uh, for me, it, it has stirred me to dream a bigger vision for God's purposes here in this church. Um, I'd really encourage you to be reading through this book during the week and uh, reading on ahead and, and praying, asking God to kind of help you see what he wanted to show Zechariah. And to understand that in the context of today. Uh, let's just remind us of, of, of what we looked at uh, last time. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. Uh, this vision of this man with a measuring line. And he's, he's heading off somewhere. And an angel uh, runs after an angel to tell him to pass on this message. Zechariah 2 verse 3. Run, tell that young man. Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number. Look at verse 11. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. As I've been sort of studying this, this, this book of Zechariah, it's just been making me think, how big is our vision? How big is my vision? How big is our vision together for what God would want to accomplish here in Edinburgh? Uh, how can we at Charlotte Chapel permeate our city to, to 
reach a, a larger harvest of people from among the nations that God is gathering to himself through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, yesterday morning, the elders uh, got together and began to sort of talk together, share a vision that each of us have of what we'd love to see God doing here. And, and we hope to kind of uh, crystallize that over the next few months and, and, and share that vision with you. Uh, I don't know what strikes you as you read those verses afresh, but if the Lord is about gathering a great number, how big is that? A great number. Do you know what? A church of 580 members is not a great number in my book. Um, and yet this is what God purposes to do. That we are surrounded by so many people from so many different nations here in this city. And do you know what? God uh, gave a vision to Zechariah that he's going to be gathering the nations in. There's going to be a great number. And the fact that we are still here today, that the sun has risen, uh, it, it means that God is calling us to have this big vision of what he wants to accomplish. And I'd be urging you to pray along with us to see how can we do this. Can I encourage you to come to the church at prayer meeting this evening and to hear some of our plans to reach out to people who haven't yet uh, responded to the gospel and to seek God's grace and power as we do that, as we head up to this Easter time. Why don't you come tonight and be involved? Our motto verse for this year is so needed, not by might nor by power, but by by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What is not possible if the Lord Almighty is at work? What is not possible? Well, we've, we've begun to consider this, uh, this letter. We, we've seen that the first three visions that Zechariah saw that night, 2,530 years ago, uh, were really kind of directed the whole community who had returned from from exile. This is sort of 500 years before Jesus, really. And the, 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 the visions, the first three visions that he saw, encouraged them to really get on with rebuilding the temple, to, to galvanize them, to get back to a building project. But the next two visions that he sees, uh, which are at the center of the eight, they turn their spotlight on two individuals. Joshua, the high priest, in chapter 3, and then Zerubbabel in chapter 4. Joshua, in a sense, is the spiritual leader of, of the exiles, uh, returned exiles, and Zerubbabel, um, a, a great name for a son, if you're wondering about names, Zerubbabel, um, was the political leader. And God wants to let these leaders know that he... He knows about them, and he has a vision for their part in this great work that he's accomplishing. So let's just read this uh, vision in chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, page 951. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. 
Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen. O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See, the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, Each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. I want to acknowledge again uh, this morning my indebtedness to Barry Webb, um, who came out to Spokane a few years ago when I was a pastor in in, uh, Washington State. And um, I heard him preach on this passage. In fact, I took notes. And so when I put Zechariah 3 into my... my, um, my uh, computer up came my sermon notes and uh, they're so good that they bear an uncanny resemblance to Barry so I've emailed Barry and I want to thank Barry I want to acknowledge him fully and um, there we are that's done right if it's if it's good it's worth sharing isn't it all right so let's let's do some great stuff here are you excited about this passage already I am uh, it, it, it breaks into three parts it breaks into three parts it begins with this accusation in the first two verses. Clearly, there's, there's a problem presented in this passage. Joshua is being accused of being unfit before God by Satan. And, and, and as we come to this passage, you know, the high priest was not just sort of anybody. He was a special person. He had a special role. He was the person especially set aside to represent the people before God in the temple. He was the sort of the mediator, the go-between between the people and God. And keep your finger in Zechariah and turn with me back to Exodus chapter 28 just to get the background of this role. Exodus 28, you'll find that on page 86 of the church Bibles, page 86. 86, Exodus 28. This is where this whole uh, high priest uh, role is set up. Uh, Verse 1, Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled men to whom I've given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as a priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so they may serve me as priests. So this special man has some very special clothes. If you look across at verse 
uh, verse 36 there of that chapter. Uh, Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten it, uh, a blue cord to it. Attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be it will be on Aaron's forehead and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate whatever their gifts may be it will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord so marked on the front of his hat is holy to the Lord everything about this man speaks of the holiness of God every bit of his clothes speaks of a holy God uh, you, you can see um, on verse uh, 22, well, actually from verse 15, it talks about this breast piece. Uh, there was a gold plate, and on it there were 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. As he goes into the temple, as he approaches the holy place, he is a representative of the people. He, he bears them on his, on, his, on his chest as he walks in to the, the presence of God. And on his shoulder, he's got a, a stone on each shoulder. On each stone uh, are the names of six tribes on this one, six tribes on the other. He bears the burden of the people and he goes before the Lord. Everything about this man speaks of holiness and separateness, the holiness of God that is required to meet a holy God. And really, he was critical for their relationship with God. Um, They depended on him for their relationship with God. He taught the people God's word. He was the one who brought the blood of their animal sacrifices and applied it to the altar and once once a year into the the most holy place onto the Ark of the Covenants. Uh, He was critical for their relationship with God. And so come back to Zechariah chapter 3 and just see with me afresh the horror of of what Zechariah sees in this vision. There is Joshua the high priest. And look at his clothes. The high priest is clothed, verse 3, in filthy clothes. Literally, he is clothed in filth. There's the high priest and he is clothed in, in, in filth. This is horrific. This is desperate. This is... This changes everything. This is a game changer. It's as if the state of his soul has been turned inside out. And all his inner filth is openly on display. He is not holy at all. He's just as much a sinner as the rest of the people. And Zechariah is seeing what the garments were there to to hide, really. Now, how would you like your personal sins over the past year let alone the accumulated filth of your whole life, kind of marked out on your clothes externally today. Most of us don't like going out with one stain on our clothes, let alone, uh, you know, in a sense, if people could just look at your clothes today and see every sin that you've committed just in the past year, every, every sinful thought that you've had, every uh, sinful uh, word you've spoken, every sinful act that you've done. And it's there, outwardly on show. How would you feel about coming to church this morning? Is that not a horrific thought? I mean, I look around the room, you look pretty decent people to me. You look, you know, a fine bunch on the whole. But what if people could really see our hearts on our clothes in that way? 
And what we have in verses 1 and 2 is a courtroom scene. The angel of the Lord is the judge representing God. And Satan is the prosecutor. He's the accuser. And as he stands before the judge, he is accusing Joshua over his sin. And here's the worst bit. Joshua is obviously guilty. Isn't that clear from his clothes? It is obvious to everyone in the courtroom that he is guilty as charged. It's like uh, going for a court case and uh, you're, you're in the dock and the truth is they've got CCTV from seven angles in high definition of you doing the crime. It is, there, there is no way about it. You are guilty. It's a terrifying sight. Satan has a watertight case. Joshua is a sinner. He is unfit for his role as high priest. He is not fit for purpose. He is not fit to serve God. And Satan is demanding that he should be condemned. And what's the point of building a temple in Jerusalem with such a priest? What's the point of even starting? How could they as a sinful community with a sinful high priest do anything that was acceptable to God? This, this, is, this is the significance of this vision here. But the incredible thing in this scene is that Satan does not get the last word. Now, my friends, this is really good news. Satan does not get the last word. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Something completely bizarre takes place in this courtroom. It's as if the judge clears the court and he refuses to hear the case of Satan and just rebukes him. And, and, and the reason for this? Well, because God has made some choices. He has chosen a people for himself. That's what it says in uh, verse 2. Joshua stands there as one of God's chosen people. And his sin does not remove his status as someone on whom God has set his electing love. God has chosen that Joshua would be one of those who would make it through the fire of judgment and exile. He's like a burning stick snatched from the fire, rescued from the judgment because God has a purpose for this man. There's no point Satan accusing him at this point because God has chosen him and has chosen that he has an ongoing purpose for him and, he, and the Lord rebukes Satan. He's been snatched for a purpose and he's silenced. Now, I know, I know that some struggle emotionally with this language of election, but I hope you can see from this passage what a sweet thing it is for Joshua. His only hope here is to have been personally counted as amongst God's chosen people. That's what's changing the, the situation here. It silences Satan's accusations, and it's the very basis of, for what happens next. Because the angel of the Lord moves from being the judge to providing the solution in verses 3 to 5. And here we see, secondly, grace that takes away our sin. Look at verse 4. Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I'll put rich garments on you. 
Now this is incredible. The, the, the filthy clothes are taken away. And this is symbolizing that his sin is being taken away. This reproach of Joshua's sin is, is removed. But even more is done for Joshua. He's told by the angel of the Lord, and I will put rich garments on you. Now what's going on here? He is being made fit to serve. This is a, a reordination ceremony. Um, Joshua can serve as high priest before God and he will officiate in the new temple. And Zechariah just can't hold back the excitement. And so he just blurts in, put a clean turban on his head. He's so excited. And a clean turban is put on his head. It would be the last piece that would have been put on before the high priest began his work. Now, here's my question. What has Joshua done in this whole vision? What has he done? Have a look back at the text. What has Joshua done? Answer? Nothing. Nothing. He just stands there. Satan's accusing him. The Lord rebukes Satan. Filthy clothes taken away. Robes Rich garments get put on him, and he has done absolutely nothing. He just stands there. At one, from one perspective, Satan is right. Joshua is guilty as charged, and yet he is not condemned. Now that's great news for Joshua, isn't it? What great news for his people who required him and his service to mediate their relationship with God. And and and. It's all of grace. He has done nothing to merit this change. He has added nothing. He, he has merely stood there and been made fit to be God's servant. Now, what sinner would not want to hear this news? It's incredible news, but there's a, there is a problem here, isn't there? Is that not a bit of a scandalous thing for God to behave in that way? I mean, imagine, um, imagine if there was a known scoundrel and uh, been in the papers for months for his outrageous behavior. Uh, all the papers are crying out for his, how appalling it is that he's behaved the way he is. And then it's announced that he's going to become the moderator of the Church of Scotland. And everybody knows he's a scoundrel, but he gets the job anyway. Now, what, what, what would be the response in the papers? Scandal! More scandal! Uh, even today, um, there's a number of uh, cases in the newspaper of people who are being discredited by scandal. People saying, well, they can no longer do their job. They should no longer be prime minister of this country. They should no longer be a trade delegate for, for our nation and so forth because we, we, we perceive there's scandal associated with them. But is that not what we see here? The judge is not there to forgive people um, or to give them high honors that they don't deserve. A judge is to weigh up evidence and pronounce judgment on those found to be guilty. And the problem with this picture really is how can a judge act like this? Well, if you've got a problem like this, you've just got to keep reading. So look at verse 8. 
Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I've set in front of, of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day. Joshua, the high priest, and those around him there, like Zerubbabel in chapter 4, are a sign of something future. A day was coming when God would remove the sin of the land in a single day, God promises. And Joshua's given this, this stone with, with seven eyes. Now, you know, you read five commentaries, you'll get different answers of what the seven eyes are. Maybe it's a gemstone with sort of seven cuts on it. I don't know, but, but, it, but, but on it is engraved this promise that the Lord will remove the sin of the land in a single day. And whenever Joshua went into the temple, if he wore this stone, in a sense, he was claiming the promise that a day was coming when God would remove their sins totally from them forever. That he would really remove it. That he would actually remove their sins forever. And it all seems to be bound, does it not, in verse 8, with the coming of this individual called the branch, the servant. Everything hangs on the coming of this person. And Jeremiah the prophet is the background to this. He wrote 100 years before these events. So um, why don't you keep your finger on Zechariah? Let's turn back to Jeremiah, chapter 25. You'll find that on page 785. Actually, I've got the wrong reference here. It's not Jeremiah 25 at all. Well, let me tell you what it is, and I'll, 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 I'll have to tell you the reference later. Okay, well, it is in Jeremiah. Can't find it right now, but here it is. I've written it down. The Lord promises through Jeremiah, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So Jeremiah has already spoken of this, this branch. And, and, and it's, a, it's a new king in the line of David. that would uh, This line of David that really ultimately failed and was like a tree chopped down. And yet there would be a new branch that would come from this stump. Uh, a new king would come. And there was great excitement amongst the exiles who had returned at that time. Because Zerubbabel, who was the governor, was descended from the line of David. And yet God wants the people to know that Joshua and Zerubbabel, they're just signs, they're symbolic of something to come. That their role as priests, the role of a governor, a king, is somehow going to be combined with this servant, the branch, this coming king. And if we just keep reading on in Zechariah, I'm going to keep working on through this in the, in the coming months. When you get to chapters 9 to 14, this is what it's all about. It's about the coming of this king. Um, on uh, the Palm Sunday, we're going to get to chapter 9, verse 9. This king is going to come riding into donkey 
uh, into Jerusalem on a donkey, bringing peace. Look at Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. And yet Zechariah prophesies in, in chapter 10 to 12 that he's going to come in contact with false shepherds who are going to oppose him and wound him. That he will be pierced. And on that same day, chapter 13, verse 1, a fountain will be opened up to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And then in chapter 14, the end of the book, the day of the Lord will come as he will be king over all the earth. That's what the prophecy of Zechariah is pointing towards. And so it should be no surprise to us when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey that Matthew uh, quotes Zechariah chapter 9. And just one week later, after Jesus rides in on a donkey, after all the palm branches being waved and shouted with joy, he is going to be crucified at the hands of the religious leaders. And his feet and hands will be pierced. And, 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 and in his death upon the cross... At that one moment, on a single day, God removed sin. That's what this book is about. Jesus was punished in the place of guilty sinners. How can the judge behave like this? How can Joshua just say, see, I've taken away your sins, take away his dirty clothes, give him rich gums? How can God do that? because of his servant, the branch. The problem of sin will, would, would be dealt with decisively and completely on a single day through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross so that Satan no longer would have power to accuse God's people. His death opens up a fountain that cleanses away our sins. Now, they had signs and symbols pointing to that. We, we, we see the reality in history of the coming of Jesus. So as we come back to chapter 3 of Zechariah, this was worth asking the question, were, were they really forgiven back then in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. They were forgiven on the same basis that we're forgiven. They believed God's promises of cleansing, and on that basis, they were really forgiven. And I'll never forget uh, Barry Webb illustrating this and just saying, um, you know, if I, if I have a checkbook here and, uh, you know, say, say I'm very generous man, David, uh, well, well, how much money would you like? Ask big. Come on, what would you like? A million? Yeah, okay. Uh, two million. Let's make it two million. So I write a check for two million and uh, sign it and I hand the check to David. There's two million. Has he, has he got the cash? Well, not yet. He's got the promise of the cash, hasn't he? The check is just a promise. And uh, whether he can cash that promise depends on um, how trustworthy I am and the extent of my bank account. And sadly, David, it's not a good week. It's not a good week. But you see, this, this is what's going on here. On the basis of what Jesus would accomplish on the cross, uh, Joshua is given this check of the assurance of his salvation that his sins were removed. They were taken away. And it is the same for us. What can we take from this passage for ourselves? Well, firstly, 
we are sinners just like Joshua. The truth is, is if our sins were on our clothes, uh, most of us wouldn't have come out today. I doubt any of us would have come out. We are unclean, we're unworthy, and there's nothing we can do about it. Joshua is, is silent. He cannot justify himself. Um, he's guilty as charged. Everything is true that is being said about him. And it's true of us too. We cannot justify ourselves. We are unclean. We are unfit to stand before God. There is no one righteous, the Bible says. There's no one right with God. And secondly... What is true of Joshua can also be true of us. That we can be guilty, but nevertheless not condemned. This is just such a stunning, beautiful picture, isn't it? He's guilty, but he's not condemned. He's forgiven freely. And yet God is not acting unjustly. Everything that was needed to be done to make this happen was done in the death of Jesus Christ. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished, that means that salvation was completely achieved. The, the cross of the Lord Jesus, we're going to remember as we come to the table shortly, is a place where God's wrath and God's mercy meet together. We are acquitted freely because Jesus paid the price. Isn't that fantastic? We read in our reading from Romans 8, who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Third point. If we come to Christ, to this, the righteous branch, and seek forgiveness, we can serve God in an acceptable way that is pleasing to him. And we do so because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. In a sense, Jesus carries before God the blood of his own sacrifice. His presence in heaven, the, the wounds of his pierced hands, are the eloquent testimony to God that our sins are paid for. That we're not guilty. That we've been cleansed. His life in heaven is the basis of our assurance that we can serve God. Now, I think as a young Christian, um, I struggle with this. And I, 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 as I meet people, often people struggle with this. You become a Christian. It's so exciting. It's so wonderful. And then, you know, maybe a, a year on or something like that, you just become aware that you are still a sinful person. You're aware of sins in your heart, the sins of your thoughts, and even the sins that you do. And you just think, it can cause you to despair. I remember in the first six months as a young Christian, I kept asking Jesus to save me every night, about seven or eight times a night, just, just to make sure it took, because I was still struggling with the reality of, of my own sin. And the devil takes his part, doesn't he? Do you hear him accusing you? Who do you think you are? You think you're a Christian? And you did that? 
You said that? You think you're a Christian? Don't kid yourself. Satan accuses. Do you know, as a pastor, I get times like this. Uh, I get overwhelmed with a sense of my own personal weakness. Uh, I recall the sinful thoughts that still plague my heart. Uh, and, uh, and Satan pitches in, who do you think you are to pastor a church? You're kidding yourself. You're unfit to that job. Have you ever heard those voices yourself? Or is it just me? Am I going mad? Do you hear that? Accusation of Satan coming at you? If you understand this passage, you can listen to the full list of your sins and say, yes, Satan, you are right. You are right. But I'm forgiven. As someone who's trusting Jesus, I'm at the same time someone who is sinful and yet not condemned. Because I am clothed in the rich garments that God has provided through the death of his son upon the cross. Isn't that great? What a great thing if we can grab hold of this. How it liberates us. How it, how it helps us to live a joyful life. We can send Satan packing. The Lord says, I rebuke you, Satan. Is this not one of my chosen ones on whom I've set my love? Who's received my pardon? Hear these words. See, I have taken away your sins. Can you hear any better news than that? Have you come to Christ and received this forgiveness? Have, have you personally come to Christ and admitted your guilt and sin and asked him to forgive you and cleanse you because of what Jesus did for you upon the cross? My friends, do that if you haven't done it today. And my Christian friend laboring with guilt... Uh, struggling to even be here today, struggling to kind of lift your eyes up above, uh, to look people in the eye. If you're trusting Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, some condemnation? No. No condemnation. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Done. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. He, he pretty much covers all the options, doesn't he? Nothing can separate us. We live our lives surrounded by grace, confident in his electing love, confident in the fully sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ in my place. Receive it today by faith. Let's pray.